Morning. morning. This morning's scripture reading will be from Daniel chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 34 through 37. That is Daniel chapter 4, 34 through 37. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and my brightness returned to me, and my counselors and my Lord sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Well, if you're visiting with us, we are delighted to have you here today. And we are certainly delighted to see Wade and Christy here. We haven't seen Wade for a while. He hasn't been feeling good, but I turn around and there he is coming in. That is wonderful. We are so happy that he is able to get out. And maybe that is a sign that things are getting back to normal. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Wade. That is a great encouragement for us today. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning, <clears throat> perhaps a little odd, but it is How to Be Broke. How to Be Broke. Well, to learn that really doesn't take a lot of instruction. If we're talking about a financial situation. All you have to do is uh, not pay a whole lot of attention to your income or your outgo. Have some kids. Let them hang around. Just don't send them off. They'll, they'll ensure that you go broke after a while. Don't worry about tomorrow or today. Act as if someone will always get you out of the bind in which you get yourself. Behave as if uh, you're always a child who uh, never has to worry about being responsible for anything and you'll be broke. And just continue down that pathway. You'll end up being broke. But here's the thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're not going to talk about how to be broke financially because no one wants to be broke financially. You don't have to be broke financially and I hope none of us are. What we're talking about is a different type of brokenness, a kind of brokenness that God is looking for in His people, and in fact, not just His people. He wants to see that in all people, so all people can be His people, right? In his retirement, Thomas Jefferson founded the University of Virginia. And because he trusted that the students would take their studies seriously. The code of discipline was very lax. Now, unfortunately, his trust proved to be misplaced. And when the misbehavior of the students led to a riot, the professors who tried to restore order were attacked. Now, the following day, a meeting was held between the university's board, of which Jefferson was one, 
and a bunch of defiant students. Now Jefferson began by saying this. He said, this is one of the most painful events of my life. And he was overcome by emotion and burst into tears. Another board member asked the rioters to come forward and give their names. And you know what? Nearly every one of them did do that. And later on, one of them said it was not Mr. Jefferson's words, but his tears. You see, former President Thomas Jefferson was broken. And that is the kind of brokenness of which we are speaking this morning. The type of which David spoke when he said this, Psalm 51, beginning with verse 15. He said, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now, David absolutely did not mean that God did not require those things. But what he meant was they originate in a broken heart. This morning, I want us to examine one of the greatest examples, in my opinion, of repentance that we find in the Bible that of King Nebuchadnezzar. And when we begin to look at King Nebuchadnezzar, we have to begin with his power. That's our first point. But there's always a source for everything. And the source of King Nebuchadnezzar's power is the source of all things. And that source is God. And we learn God gave the nation of Israel into the hand of the Babylonian king. He let them have it. Israel was being punished because they did not recognize God as the source of their power. They were not behaving as God instructed them to behave. And they were relying upon themselves. And they were relying upon uh, relationships that they had formed with other nations. And so they he just handed them over to the Babylonian king. Now Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. And he oversaw the most powerful nation in the world. And the king and the nation was at the pinnacle of their success at that time in the history of the world. And it was all because God had endowed him with that power. Daniel 5, 18. Now the same is true today. Romans chapter 13. God places in power those who He wants to be in power. God has ordained the governments of the world. Now that does not intend that God ordains the wickedness of those governments. He just simply has ordained government. And the purpose of government is so its citizens can lead peaceable lives. Not so a government can be oppressive. Not so a government can do the things that is wicked and evil for themselves. That's not the purpose of government. But God ordains a government. And God will put into place... And into power, those who are in power. Well, someone says, what about if they're, it's a wicked nation? Well, they'll get theirs. God will punish them, but He'll use them to serve a purpose. And then He'll turn around and He'll punish that nation. He did it to Babylon. He did it to Persia. He did it to Greece. And He did it to Rome. And He'll do it to any other nation. Because God is the source of power. He ordains power. 
He just does not ordain the wickedness. Now the point here is this. No person is a self-made person. Now we're not saying a person doesn't work himself into being where he needs to be. That doesn't mean that someone has given that person something. What we're talking about is that that person got to where he was because of the hard work on his part and the blessings of God. Now that's what we mean. Nebuchadnezzar got to where he was because he did the things he was supposed to do and because God gave it to him. Right? James 1.17 A person is what God allows that person to be according to God's sovereign will. That's what we're talking about. And it is prideful to claim greatness in this life without acknowledging the source of that greatness. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was claiming greatness without acknowledging the source of that greatness and that made Nebuchadnezzar shameful in the sight of God because he did not recognize the source. He ignored God, right? He was trying to live independently of God. He was trying to live in such a way that God did not exist. He did not recognize God. He did not care for God, nor did he care for the will of God. He wasn't going to do what God said. Kind of reminds you of Pharaoh, right? Exodus uh, chapters 1 through 11. Who is God that I should obey Him? Well, you're about to find out. You're about to find out who God is that you ought to obey Him. Now that could describe nearly any of the more than 7 billion people who populate the world today, couldn't it? See, all of these people who populate the world today, they have locomotion, they have emotion, and they have intellect, but God is dead to them, and they have no desire to have anything to do with the spiritual realm of life. They just ignore God as if He does not even exist. In fact, many of them will say He does not exist. You know, most of the world refuses to come out of that spiritual stupor of which Paul spoke. Paul said, And you He made alive, speaking to the Ephesians, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also you were all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature or by practice the children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You see, those people came out of that stupor. They were quickened or made alive by the grace of God. Because that's where it begins. See, God doesn't have to extend mercy. He doesn't have to extend a plan of salvation. But through His grace or unmerited favor, He has done that. But like the king of Babylon, most in the world take life for granted and they ignore God and His plan of salvation, trudging stubbornly toward damnation and hell 
in eternal separation from God. And that's what awaits the lost souls who will populate all of hell in eternity. You see, one may believe he is in control of this life, but if he dies without the blood of Jesus, what has he accomplished? What has he been in control of? He's been in control of nothing. And that's what Jesus addressed when he spoke the parable of the rich fool, wasn't he? That man thought he had accomplished a great thing in this life. He thought he was in control of everything that mattered. <coughs> he was in control of nothing. Notice what he said, Luke 12, beginning with verse 16. He said, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Mine, mine, mine. I will do this. I will do that. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night your soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I don't think... I don't think we ought to, ought to lose the sarcasm in that statement. Then who will those things be that you have created, right? Which you have provided. He hadn't provided anything. What brought forth plentifully? The ground. The ground brought forth plentifully. That man thought he was in control of everything. He wasn't in control of anything. God had blessed his efforts. Let's not take, let's not take away from anyone their effort because that is required 100%. But what we need to do is we need to give credit to God every single time. He blesses that effort. Without the effort, nothing's going to happen. God's not going to give us something when we do not do our part. But we have to recognize God is the source or we're shameful in His sight. And when that day comes, you see, these people who are in the position of Nebuchadnezzar at that time, before he was recognizing the power of God, the rich fool, they're not going to be in a position to be angry with God because He has done all that He can do to give every single person who's ever lived or whoever will live every opportunity to be what they need to be. But those who will be lost have chosen that pathway. The truth is this. The one who's not walking in the light, that person is not in control of his life. Satan is in control of his life. Period. That's the truth. Paul asks this. Romans six sixteen. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? 
You're a slave to someone. We just have to figure out who that's going to be. God had given Nebuchadnezzar power, but he abused it. And he abused it because of the place he had chosen for himself. That's our second point. Let's notice some of these places wherein Nebuchadnezzar had found himself. First of all, he had found himself in the place of indifference. Now let's back up a little bit. And let's look in chapter 2 of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had the opportunity to turn to the true God of heaven in chapter 2. He had had a dream. And he had a dream of this fierce and great image. But instead of turning to God after he had determined what that image represented because Daniel had interpreted that dream, and you recall that dream, it was a, it was an image, and on top of that image was this head of gold. And Daniel said, King, you are that head of gold. God's placed you there. God's placed you there. He's made you that head of gold. And then we get all the way down to verse 46, and having the opportunity to recognize what God had done, instead of doing that, he fell down prostrate in front of Daniel and worshipped Daniel. So he didn't recognize the God of heaven. And he said that Daniel's God was a God among gods. He was just indifferent. A place of indifferent. So after all he saw, his heart was still hard and indifferent to the God of heaven. Hey, that's still happening today. That's happening today. And that is a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous place to be in this life. People hear the gospel, they recognize the truth, yet they are indifferent to it. Right? There will be no preaching or teaching in hell. Not going to happen. There are going to be no prayers of the saints in hell. There are going to be no encouraging songs of collective worship by the saints in hell. There is going to be no encouragement from the brethren in hell. There's going to be no indifference in hell. Everyone is going to be on the same page in hell. They don't want to be there. There will be no indifference. Paul told Timothy, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. The idea is to do it now. That's what Paul is saying. Flee all of those things. No one is going to be interested in the things that landed them in hell in eternity. They're not going to be interested in it. Because all that's going to be on their mind is getting out of hell, but there's no escape. There will be no indifference in hell. It will not exist. The king was also in the place of indulgence. And that prevented him from obeying the God of heaven. Now let's move over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, we see that the king now, he had had this dream of this, of this great image. Now he built the image. He built the image. I think he built the image probably in recognition of himself. Maybe to recognize a God that he believed in, but probably to himself. He wanted to indulge himself. But we see that in, in chapter 3. But what this did was it was preventative of him interacting with God the way he should have interacted with Him. It prevented him from being the person God needed him to be. 
And so again, he's seen the power of God in the lives of three young men. Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. They're not going to bow down before this image. And that's what, that's what he required, right? You hear the music, you bow down. They said, oh king, we're not careful in answering you. We're not full of care. <clears throat> and in essence, they said, we're not going to bow down. Now, you may throw us in this furnace. Our God is able to save us, but if He doesn't, we're not going to bow down. And so He threw them into the furnace. And by doing that, He saw the power of God working in the lives of these young men. Did it change him? No, it didn't change him. Now, it moved him a little closer. It moved him a little closer... But he stopped short of total commitment. Now what he said was the God of Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Daniel was above the other gods. Was above the other gods. But for the king, God was still the God of those men. He wasn't his God, right? He was softened toward God, but he was not broken yet. He was not broken You see, God wants a broken heart, a contrite heart. He needs His people to be broken. And that's not where this king was. He was a little religious. Did we ever see that today? Do we see people who are a little religious? Do we see people who put something before God? You see, that's idolatry. Now, I think people in this nation, they look out and they say, we're not an idolatrous nation. Listen, the United States is the most idolatrous nation probably in the world. Someone looks around and says, no, no, that's India. Have you ever seen? If you've ever been to India, there's an idol on every corner and in between each corner. But they're not more idolatrous than our nation. Here's what idolatry is. Anything you put before God is idolatry. Money, a job, events, recreation, family. Anything that goes before God is idolatry. And we don't understand that because of our culture. We think idolatry has to be a statue or an icon or a picture or something like that. That's not true. Idolatry is anything we place before God. It doesn't have to be a statue. Now let's notice chapter 4. Where we begin, the king was warned that he would be brought down. Now let's look at his interest. He's in a place of interest. He's warned about his pride, but he was also told he could avoid his reckoning if he repented. But what did he do? He ignored it. He ignored it. He wasn't interested. So he's out walking one day. He didn't want to turn to God. He had no intention of repenting. And he chose his sin over the warnings of God. Now by that time, his heart was hardened. He had ceased to be touched by the words of God. Didn't matter what Daniel had to say. Didn't matter what he saw in the lives of these people. And Nebuchadnezzar was walking completely in pride. And now notice what the king had to say. Daniel chapter 4 verse 30. Now remember, he's out. He's a saying, this great Babylon is not this great Babylon that I have built 
for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. Now, wait a minute. Let's go back to this parable that the Lord spoke. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? This ground gave forth plentifully. Look at all this stuff that I have made for myself. I'm going to have to tear down my barns that I built. And I'm going to have to build bigger barns because I have brought forth such a great amount of goods that I can't hold it in my old barns. That sounds exactly like King Nebuchadnezzar. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. Now let's look at what he was looking at. Notice how God had blessed him. Notice what he was so interested in, what he was looking at. The great walls of Babylon were 387 feet high. That's how tall they were. They were 87 feet thick. Each side of the great wall was 15 miles long. And they enclosed an area of 225 square miles. The walls were so wide that four chariots could travel side by side on top of the wall. The mighty Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city. On one bank were terraces covered in rich greenery leading to a central altar. In the middle of the city was this massive temple in honor of Baal with all its buildings and smaller temples and shrines surrounding it. So as this king looked out over that great city, and this is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. He could see these spacious gardens and all these orchards that fed the entire population of two million people. And as he walked and talked, he took credit for the whole thing. Completely leaving God out of the equation the one who said it would be so, Daniel 2, 37 through 38. That's who we're talking about. He had forgotten that the same God who said He would bless him promised to break him. And be sure your sin will find you out, Numbers 32, 23, whether in this life or in the next one. Let's not forget what Paul warned, Galatians 6, verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now let's notice Nebuchadnezzar's perception. This is our third and our last point. The king finally realized what he needed to do. After all of this trouble, he was sent out into the wilderness until seven times passed over. Now we don't know how long he was out there. Some think it was... Seven times the full moon passed over. Some think it was seven years. Some think this, some think that. We're not told. We're not told, but what we do know is this. He lost his mind as a human. 
He went out into the wilderness. He lived as an animal till his hair grew long like the feathers of a of an eagle. His fingernails grew out till they were like talons, and he ate like a wild ox. He lived like an animal. He learned a valuable lesson. He realized what he needed to do to have a proper relationship with God. And it was there all along. He needed to repent. You see, that's the place where a whole lot of folks find themselves today. Whether saved or lost. The alien sinner, the lost, the person who's never obeyed the gospel certainly needs to repent. That's part of the plan of salvation. Faith. Without faith, it's possible to, to please Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6, speaking of God. Repentance, Acts 17, 30. Uh, God requires all people to repent. Confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, recognizing what He's done for us. Immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin. That's what is the last step into salvation, where baptism doth also now save us. First uh, Peter three twenty one, and living a faithful life unto the end. Matthew ten twenty four, or the the Christian who has done those things and has stepped outside the light and has decided to go back into sin. That person needs to repent and needs to come back to God. Uh, may have to make a public confession of sin if if it's not possible to to do that privately. May have to do that publicly. Even if it is of a private nature, he has to repent. Confess that sin to God privately. Come back to Him. And live faithfully. Even the person who's walking in the light. 1 John 1, verses 6-9. through The faithful Christian who's walking in the light, who's continually being cleansed from the sins of this life, that indicates that even the faithful Christian commits sin from time to time, recognizing that sin. That's not a planned sin. That's not living in sin. That means that we make a mistake. We sin. We recognize it. We stop immediately. We ask God to forgive us. We are cleansed from that sin. That's not living in sin. But see, repentance is necessary. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar needed to understand. But see, you have to let go of pride first. Or or let go of whatever's holding one back. Nebuchadnezzar had to understand that. But what will it take to become broken before God? What does it take? What does it take? It takes godly sorrow to begin with, right? 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. You see, being sorry means I'm sorry for what I did, not because I got caught. We're not talking about politicians sorry, Right? We're talking about I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did it. I'm sorry I hurt God. I'm sorry I hurt someone. I wish if I could do it over again, I would never do it. Because it hurt God and it hurt those I love. After Nebuchadnezzar realized where he was and what he needed to do, he received the greatest thing that anyone can receive, and that's salvation. I truly believe that Nebuchadnezzar became a follower of God. And I think we see it in the statement that he made. Now, the king lived under a different time. The requirements were different, but he fulfilled them. I think we see it in that statement. He did what he needed to do. And I think we, I I read the sincerity in his statement, in his reaction to God. He gives honor and glory to God 
And God deserves it. God's the source. He's the power. At that time in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time, I think he's a saved man. And he's an example of what a broken man looks like. He's an example of someone who demonstrates godly sorrow. Someone who's living that godly sorrow in recognition of who God is. I believe when the saved get to heaven, there's going to be a man there named Nebuchadnezzar. I think we can learn from him. Will Rogers was known for his laughter. But he also knew how to weep. One day he was entertaining at the Milton H. Berry Institute in Los Angeles. A hospital that specialized in rehabilitating polio victims and people with broken backs and other extreme physical handicaps. Of course, Rogers had everybody laughing and even patients in really bad condition. But then he suddenly left the performance and he went to the restroom. Well, Milton Berry followed him to give him a towel and when he opened the door, he saw Will Rogers leaning against the wall, sobbing like a child. And so he just backed out and he closed the door and in a few minutes, Rogers appeared back on the platform just as jovial as ever. And he continued with the performance and as if nothing had ever happened. I think if we want to really learn what a person is like, I think we ought to ask three questions. What makes him laugh? What makes him angry? And what makes him weep? I think those are fairly good tests of character that are especially appropriate for Christians. I hear people say, we need angry leaders today. Well, maybe we do. Or the time has come to practice militant Christianity in the sense that that we need to be persistent. And maybe that's true in some sense. But the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James 1.20. What we need today is, is is not anger, I don't think, necessarily. I think we need to be angry at sin, but I think what we need is anguish. The kind of anguish that Moses displayed when he came down off of that mountain and he broke those Ten Commandments, but then the kind of anguish that caused him to go back up on that mountain and spend 40 days making another set of Ten Commandments and pleading on behalf of the people to God. Or the kind that Jesus displayed when He cleansed the temple on two occasions and, and whipped out the money changers with a, with a whip and then looked out over Jerusalem and wept for those people. You see, the difference between anger and anguish is a broken heart. I think it's easy to be angry, especially at someone else's sins, but it's not easy to look at sin, including our own, and weep over it. And I think that's what the world needs. How to be broke. I think it begins with godly sorrow. One must understand that a soft heart leads to repentance, to understanding what Jesus did for the world, recognizing that, following His commandments. They're not hard. It just takes a soft heart. If you're in need to answer the Lord's invitation at this time, we talked about how to do that. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.